Over in verse 23 of John 13, we have this description of a certain disciple. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That term for the disciple is repeated, chapter 19, chapter 20, and twice in chapter 21. And it is generally accepted this disciple is the author of this gospel, John himself. And it is fitting that the disciple whom Jesus loved should be given the inspired task of recording the details of Christ's love for his own. It is the disciple whom Jesus loved who has this closest insight into the heart of his Savior. He could, if you like, spiritually hear the heartbeat of Christ as he leant upon the Lord's bosom. John's gospel is replete with references to love. And you'll know the Greek noun for love, agape, you'll know that noun well. But the verbal form of that, agapeo, is used 37 times in the gospel of John. Only one other book gets close to that number, and that, believe it or not, is 1 John. And so the two or two of these books written by John are full of the verb to love. Now, for comparison, uh, this verb is found uh, third place in the order is the book of Ephesians, and there it's found ten times. So you get the sense, 37 times in John's gospel, 28 times in 1 John, this disciple whom Jesus loved is a disciple who's full of things to say about the subject of love. Now, the verb is not always used to denote the love of God or Christ for his people. It's used in in various and in general ways. It's used regarding the love a believer is to have for one another. They are to love one another. We'll see that uh, later on in our studies. It's used for the love of the Father uh, for the Son and for the Son for the Father. It's used, of course, in John 3.16 for God so loving the world. It's used here in John 13 for Jesus loving his own. And they come together. If you turn across to chapter 15, you'll see these things all come together. John 15, verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And then you're seeing all of these concepts coming together. The Father loves his people. The Father loves the Son. And as the Father loves his people and loves his Son, so the Son therefore loves his people. Again, one of the things is a passing comment. There is no conflict in the Trinity regarding love. Again, there are various misunderstandings. Some have the idea that, well, I, I see Jesus loves me. And because he loves me, he then convinces the Father to love me. And that's not true. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father has a tremendous love for his people. There's no conflict in the Trinity. And it's also the case that as the father loves, so does the son. And so the son incarnate with his name Jesus is said to love his own which were in the world. We could say of John, John is the apostle of love. Love is, if you like, it's his thing. And explains so clearly in his writings. He that loved his Lord gives us the most precious display of that love. Last time we were in this passage, we noted this section is really a new section in John's gospel. 
John really has it's a prologue, it's got an epilogue, and it's got two major sections in the middle that make up the bulk of uh, the gospel. Again, back in chapter 12, um, the verse number 37, you'll see how that section ends uh, with a reference to miracles or signs. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Uh, And this reference to signs uh, really are the hinges uh, upon which the door of the gospel swings. Because you'll see over in chapter 20, chapter 20 and the verse number 30, uh, a very similar ending to the second section. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. And then you have the theme of the book, but these are written that you may believe. In other words, John's purpose and function is to show evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John furnishes us with details regarding the signs and the miracles, and also regarding the love of Christ. You see, the one who is the Christ, the Son of God, is the one who is said to love his own. The Lord does not come as a heartless redeemer. He comes as redeemer of love. One who comes to redeem out of love. One who comes to redeem in love and to redeem and to keep in love. And so as the gospel goes from section 1 to section 2 in verse number 13, or chapter 13, we have this extended heading of the new section. If you like, it's a lengthy title. Verse 1 serves as a title for the whole passion section that will lead us all the way to the cross and the resurrection. And so in verse 1 of chapter 13 it says, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And that is going to be the theme of the following chapters. All the way to the end of chapter 20, we are going to see Christ loving his own unto the end. And I'll say more of that before tonight closes. And so this evening, as we come to look at these verses, this verse, I want to go very in a, a very old-fashioned way of dealing with it. I want to try to expound the text, and then I want to bring some application as we draw things to a close. So let's begin with exposition. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I want to try to determine the grammatical meaning of the words that are used here. And again, our eyes are particularly focusing upon the latter part of verse number 1. As God's people, I've said this before, it is vital that I, as your pastor, seek to help you interpret the word of God yourself. That by example, you would say, well, I can do this my own. I can read the Bible in my own home and I can work these things out clearly for myself. And so when it comes to a verse like John 13, verse 1, you've got to look at the words, you've got to look at the sentences, and you've got to try to think, how does this all come together? Now, if you're, again, I don't know what uh, English is taught in the grades down through the schools in, uh, in, in, this, in this nation, but I wonder when do you begin to, to parse sentences and begin to understand what sentences are all about? And some of you are going, I, I don't ever, ever do that. Well, you're going to do it tonight because it's really important. Again, I, I'm being very clear. When missionaries go into far-flung lands, They seek to understand language and then translate language because you cannot grow as a Christian unless you engage with the language of the Bible. It doesn't mean you're all experts in English 
or Greek or Hebrew, but you've got to have a basic understanding of language to properly understand the text. That's why literacy is so very, very important. Literacy among God's people that we would, that would grow in understanding. Now, a lack of literacy is not a barrier to salvation. It's not a condition to be saved. I'm not saying that for a second. But for growth and maturity, it's important that we understand these things and work at it. Don't be content with a rudimentary knowledge of the word of God. Seek to dig deep that you'll grow in your faith and knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so as you look at this, this is a very complex sentence. In my Bible, it extends beyond six lines in the single column. And so you've got this complex sentence. It has a beginning now. It has the word end at the end with the period that follows. But what's it all about? Well, you've got to identify, if you like, you've got to identify the main verb. And that's found actually at the very end of the sentence. He loved them. There's your subject, verb, and object in this sentence. You've got the main verb, loved. The subject is Christ. He loved them. The object are those he loved them. Given the definition, he loved his own, which were in the world. You see, when you remove all the, if you like, remove all the subsidiary clauses, you're then left with that one single sentence. Jesus loved his own. That's the basic sentence, isn't it? Can you see that? Look at your Bibles. Put your eyes upon your Bible and you'll see that. If you read that sentence, that's what it's all about. Jesus loved his own. And everything else just fleshes out that sentence. It makes sense and expands upon the concept. And so when you establish that main thought, Jesus loved his own, you then can begin to identify the various qualifiers around that main sentence. And so that's the headings. You see the occasion of his love. You see, initially we're shown clauses and phrases that, that really explain when this is happening. Verse 1. Now, there's a timestamp before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. So when's he said to loving them? He, he loves them at this occasion, the feast of the Passover. I'm not going back over last time we're together. It is, of course, the sovereign appointment of God that the death of Christ would coincide with the Passover. There's no such thing as coincidences. There are sovereign coincidences. There are things that God brings together in his sovereign purpose to accomplish his will. And it is the will of God that Passover and the death of Christ would coincide in the purpose of God. That's how wise our God is. That's how powerful our God is. That we would see the Passover being fulfilled in the death of Christ. You've also then the reference, when Jesus knew. He knew his hour. He knew the hour was approaching. Again, I'm not going back over that material. His hour refers to the time appointed of his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. It's all in that one act of redemption in the culmination of his obedience to the will of the Father. He knew his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Again, that's important. His love does not decrease and diminish due to 
any thought for self. You know, when life gets difficult for us, we become self-absorbed. And when we are self-absorbed, then we feel to love others as we ought. And I warn you all, as the people of God here, it is your duty to love one another. And the danger you'll find in the spiritual realm is that when you encounter trials, you'll become self-absorbed, focus upon yourself, and you will forget to obey the command of God to love your neighbor as yourself. Christ did not feel to love his neighbor even though the hour of his death is approaching, even though the cup is about to come before him, even all of these things, yet he is still determined to love his own unto the end. That's the occasion. Death is on the horizon here. When he knew, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. The second thing then is to note the objects of his love. Again, that's the, the object of the sentence. Jesus loved his own which were in the world. His own. Here, I trust you know me well enough now that I'm not going to give you simply an answer that may be what we assume it means. We are not entitled to do that. We must interpret the word of God in its context. We must be clear as to its meaning and then and only then draw lines application. We could take this phrase, loved his own, and go in so many different directions. But we must interpret it in its context. And there are very strong clues in the context here of the upper room that indicates meaning precisely. Look across to John 11. So we've got this phrase here, he loved his own which were in the world. And in John 17 verse 11 it says this, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee. Again, we're going to come eventually to John 17, but one of the things to notice in John 17 is the Lord prays in such a way, indicating that his work is complete, so certain is it. And so you get some of the prophetic past tenses used in Christ's prayer in a similar way you get in some of the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament. But leaving that aside, I just want you to note the references to the disciples here. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And then verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Who's he got in mind here? Who's he praying for in the initial sections of John 17? He is praying for the 11. He's praying for the apostles. And then from that, he's praying for those who believe on Christ through the apostolic ministry. He's referring here to those 11 who were in front of him at that time. They are those who belong to Christ. Verse number 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou givest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou givest them me, and they have kept thy word. Again, this is a reference to the disciples, the apostles, the eleven, save Judas. This is a reference to those who have been given to the Son by the Father. Note the language. 
They belong to Christ. They are his own because they've been given to him by the Father. They are those who are obedient believers. They've kept thy word, verse number six. Verse number eight, I have given unto them the words which thou givest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. There's a reference to the apostles here. And they are those who are said to be in the world. That's what Jesus is saying. My own, his own, which were in the world. Verse 11. I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Verse 15. I pray not that I should take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, but they are in the world. Verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So the objects of his love in John 13 are the 11 apostles. The 12, Judas exempted. Again, it's clear that Judas is not involved in this, in this prayer. Verse number 12, John 17. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou givest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. Judas is excluded. But the eleven in John 13 are described here as his own, which were in the world. And I think John, John 17 makes it clear that we must interpret John 13 verse 1 in that regard. It's a description of the eleven apostles. So we have here the occasion of his love and the objects of his love. And then note thirdly, please, the obduracy of his love. I understand. You know I, I like alliteration, but this is not just for alliteration. The meaning of this word is, is very, very emphatic. It is a persistent adherence to a particular purpose despite reasons against that purpose. Now, it's often used negatively. It can be used of someone who's stubborn in their sin. I'm not using it in that way at all, but I'm using it regarding Christ, who is stubborn and persistent in his love, despite the reasons of the contrary. And the text points us in that direction. He loved his own, which were in the world, when? When he knew that his hour was come. There are reasons whereby he should hold back against his love. But no, he persists. He's obdurate in his love. This is our saviour. And so in light of this obduracy, please note, first of all, the previous evidence of his love. The previous evidence of his love. The text tells us, having loved his own. Now, I understand we want to insert ourselves into this text. We want this text to be true of us. We want to know, Jesus loves me this, I know, I understand that. But listen to what the text says. Having loved his own which were in the world. It's describing Christ's love in an actual point in time. He's loved the 11 apostles. He's loved them by revealing the divine nature to them. You can turn across to John 17. I'm going to show you how he has loved them. He's revealed himself to them. He's revealed the Father to them. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gives me out of the world. How does Jesus love them? 
by revealing the divine nature to them. The name of God. Now, here again we have some profound information regarding the Trinity. Because to know the Father is to know the Son. And to know the Son is to know the Father. For no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so the Son comes and declares the Father. And the Son can pray to the Father, I have manifested thy name. And he manifests the name of the Father, the glory of the Father, by revealing himself to the disciples. And that's exactly what you see. You know, remember Thomas is confused. How can we know the Father? And the Lord says, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus loves the eleven apostles here by showing them his glory. The glory that is hidden in incarnate form, but that bursts through in these signs and wonders. So turn back to John chapter 1. Because in John 1, you begin to get an idea of the love of Jesus for the disciples. And it begins in the testimonies and the conversion of the initial disciples. You think of John 1 verse 37. Those are disciples of John the Baptist. And they heard the words of John and they followed Jesus. And Jesus allows them to follow him. And as he allows them to follow him, they bear witness in verse number 41. We have found the Messiah. That's no small statement. As they have come after Jesus, he has opened their eyes that they have behold that he is the Christ. Now John, John's going to take 20 more chapters to prove the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But in chapter 1, in the very earliest part of the ministry, the Lord opens the eyes of the disciples to see him for who he is. They are those who are seeking him. In verse 43, it says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip. I I love love this. There are those who find the Savior, and there are those whom the Savior finds. Now, Now, God is sovereign over all of those things, but there are those who are seeking to know more about Christ, and there are those, and Christ just finds them like this, all of a sudden. Not looking, not suspecting, but confronted with this Christ, and again they say the very same thing, they come to the conclusion that we find the Christ. Now I don't have time to go through all of John's gospel, but I want to show you a few things here. Look at John 2 verse 11. It's a description. Remember how important signs are in John's gospel? The signs that prove who Jesus is? Well, well John 2 verse 11, this beginning of miracles, this is the water into wine, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. You you just see that last last section and it's it's just a little detail. But the point is the disciples are there when they behold the wonder and the miracle and the sign that Christ performs. Then look at John chapter 6. And these are these, these just examples. John 6, verse number 3. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And what happens next? 
the 5,000 are fed and the disciples are they're, they're hands on in the miracle. They're, they're distributing the bread and they're collecting the leftovers. They are eyewitnesses of the miracles and the signs. Chapter 9. John chapter 9 verse 1. Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, who was born blind? And the Lord says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Remember John 17, verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou hast given me. The Lord, having loved his own. How has he loved his own? He's loved his own by opening their eyes to behold the glory of his person. They've come to see Jesus and know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. John 11, verse 15, the last one. John 11, verse 15. To do with the event of Lazarus and his death. The Lord says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. These miracles, they're not in a vacuum. They're very purposeful. And one of the chief purposes of the miracles is to convince the 11 apostles that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What love Christ had for those men. They were not left in darkness. They were not left in the company of unbelief. Rather, he reveals himself to them They see him, they see the Father. God is revealed to them in the love of Christ Jesus. And so, how does he love them? He reveals himself to them. What else? He teaches them. Back in John 17, he taught them. John 17, the verse number 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou givest me, and they have received them. Here's further evidence of the love that Christ has for these disciples. They are given the words of God through Christ the great prophet. What love there is in this. I'm so tempted to go to the application right now. I'm trying to hold back. Do you doubt Christ's love for you? Here's how Christ displays his love. Our eyes are open to behold who he is and we delight to hear and receive his word. Those are the marks of Christ's love. He reveals himself to them. He teaches them. He protects them. John 17 verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou givest me, I have kept. He prays for them. He protects them from harm, having loved his own. How has he loved his own? In these ways. He's loved his own by revealing himself, by teaching them the words of God, and by protecting them. That's the previous evidence of his love. But this love is not momentary. It is not temporary. And so we see, secondly, under the obduracy of his love, we see the previous evidence, and secondly, we see the promised endurance of his love. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them, and here's the final phrase, unto the end. I 
Again, there are all manner of different ideas regarding what this means. Unto the end. The word indicates completion. It indicates the fulfilling of purpose. And so there are those who say, well, he loved the disciples, he loves his own, and he loves them unto their perfection. He begins good work and will complete it. Philippians chapter 1, we believe that. Others say, well, it means he loves them to the end of their lives, to the end. Others give the idea, he loves them unto the end of the age. All those things are true. All those things are absolutely true. But they all have a problem. They all have a tendency to imply that the love ends at a certain point. What happens after they die? What happens after the end of the age? See, Christ's love is eternal. This is not describing Christ's love in some temporal sense. That it's going to come to conclusion at some end point. That's not what's involved here. The word the end here is a very particular sense in John's gospel. Turn to John 4, please. You're a patient people, and you're being patient tonight again. We've got to work through the details here. And I trust when we do so, we'll then see the benefit of this. But John chapter 4, and the verse number 34, we're going to see this word end used in a different sense. But in the same way. Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. The word finish here is connected, in terms of grammar, it's connected to the word for the end in John 13, verse 1. Then over in John 17, verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have, and here's our verb again, I have finished the work which thou givest me to do. John 19, verse 30. The same verb is used in a different form here. John 19 verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, finished. Ended. Completed. Fulfilled. John 13 verse 1 is a reference to Christ completing the work the Father gave to him. It is, and we'll see in future studies, how closely linked John 13 is to Philippians chapter 2. The Lord coming in the form of a servant. He leaves the top of the table. He takes, he rises from supper and lays aside his garments. He takes the form of a servant. He does all that because he is obedient unto death. All the way, his obedience to the Father leads him to the cross. He's obedient to death. And so John 13 verse 1, at Passover time, as the Lord sees the lamb that is slain, he determines in his soul, I will finish the work. I will love them and complete the task. Despite knowing the hour is coming, despite knowing what's in the future for him, despite all of those things, he would love them still. Having loved his own all of these months, Having loved those given to him by the Father, he would continue to love them even unto death. At that particular moment, as the hour comes, as death approaches, he is determined to display his love to them. 
The washing of their, defeat, of their feet is a display of the servant love of Christ for their souls. And so John 13 all the way through 20 is the display of Jesus who loved his own in the past. Will now love them not just at the cross but from John 13 until the cross. He will love them in washing their feet. He will love them in teaching them. He will love them in praying for them. He loved them all the way to the cross. And when he gets to the cross he loved them there still. And praise God he still loves them. This love does not end. But the emphasis of John 13 is the determination of Christ not to give up loving his own, which were in the world. His love displayed in that fashion. So that's something of an attempt to explain this text in its context. Not to insert meaning, but to draw the meaning out of the text as we find it in these chapters in John. So that leads then to application how do you begin to apply this well the love that christ had for the 11 is the very redeeming love he has for all those given to him you see john 6 refers to other sheep not of this fold them he's also going to bring and so immediately in john we have the idea that the Save company does not number 11, but numbers a multitude that no man can number. Made every kindred, tribe, and tongue. He loves the world in John's gospel. And so what you're seeing in John 13 is an historical display of Christ's love that reveals the love of Christ to all of us now. This is what Jesus' love looks like. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now you don't need to get there by denying the simple meaning of John 13, 1. It does refer to the 11. And it does refer to the love he displayed to them in the upper room. And then at the cross. But this is the unchanging love of Christ. Displayed here is the love of Christ for all the members of his body. And so we have that connection that we saw in John 17, verse 20. Neither pray for these alone but for them also shall believe in me through their word. Why is Jesus praying for the eleven? Because he loves them. And if he's praying for others who believe on him through their word, the prayers of love for the eleven are the same prayers offered in love for the rest of those who come to believe in the gospel. So there are contextual links to allow us to take the sense of John 13 and to apply it to ourselves. And therefore, I encourage you tonight to contemplate Christ's love for his own and add your name to the company. No longer 11, but 11 million times 11 million. I don't know how many people have come to Christ, but the number is vast and beyond our calculation and you are part of that company. The special love of Christ for his own. God has a general love for mankind. He gives the rain and the sun upon the just and the unjust. He is kind to the unthankful. But here we are contemplating the love that Christ has for his own. You see, we are encouraged in the word of God to see these loves in different ways. There is a disciple whom Jesus loved 
one in particular who, as the Lord is on this earth, had a closest affiliation to Christ Jesus, John himself. But his own here in John 13, that's, that's, that's all the 11. And we're connected to them in the gospel. I say, dear believer, I'm, I'm wondering tonight, are you confident of Christ's love for you? Are you sure that Jesus loves you? Dear child of God, I encourage you, do not doubt Christ's love. See, the evidence of Christ's love does not come to you in terms of material blessing. We have to be so, so, so careful here. We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from above. We believe that all that we have comes in the goodness of God. But dear people, material blessing is no proof of God's love for your soul. When you receive good things, give God thanks and praise and glory. But do not presume that the reception of good gifts are evidence of God's love for you. The wicked have plenty in this world. They prosper every turn of the page. Do not rest your confidence in God's love because of what you've gained materially. How do you know that Christ loves you? Because your eyes are open to know him. He's revealed himself to you. You've read the word of God. You've read about the signs and the wonders and the miracles. And you've come to John chapter 20. These things are written that you might believe. And you've read those things and you say, yes, I believe. I believe, even me, therefore I must be Christ's own because there are those in this world and they've all this world's goods but they do not see Jesus, but you do because he loves you. Having loved his own, how? By revealing himself to them, by teaching them, by protecting them. That's the evidence of Christ's love for you. But you've come to know him and believe in him. So dear child of God, those of you who trust in Christ, do not doubt Christ's love for you. Even though you may lose all of this world's goods, even though you may lose your health and even your life, losing everything does not, does not disprove the love that Christ has for your soul. Special love that is suitable love Again, we mentioned this last time. He loved his own which were in the world. I simply want to point out that the love that he had for the eleven in the world was a love that prayed for them and protected them. And the application, just one line. Whatever your condition, Christ displays his love for you in a simple manner. You, you may not be in any mortal danger. You may not be in a spiritually dangerous condition right now. But whatever condition you find yourself in this world, Christ's love is suitable for you in your need. It's impossible for Christ to love you badly or to love you in a way that lacks wisdom or lacks compassion. Christ's love is always wonderful. It's always perfect and it's always suitable for the time of need. His love may come to you in forms of rebuke. His love may come to you in forms of comfort from God's people. I, I don't know. It will come in various ways. But it's always special and it's always suitable. And so as you contemplate Christ's love, how must you respond to Christ's love? 
His love is remarkable. Given the objects, his own, those who were sinful, those who were prone to wonder, those who are prone to unbelief, his love is wonderful in the objects, in the expression, in the direction, all the way to the cross. And we must respond to that love properly. In humility, Jesus loves even me. Isn't that what the hymn says? Those words, even me. They should be spoken with surprise and wonder. And a sense of, of confusion. How can it be so that Jesus loves even me? The humility, the piety, devotion to Christ. He loves me to the cross. He loves his own all the way to the cross to suffer and bleed and die, to suffer the agonies of the cross and separation from the Father because he loved me unto the end. How can I not love him? How can I not give my life for this Savior? When he loved me with such compassion and such obdurate determination, he loved me unto the end. Piety, devotion to Christ. How can you dabble with sin? How can you play fast and loose with the things of God? Humility, piety, charity. Christ loves his own. And the church of Christ is very prone to hate their own. It is a dreadful thing when we hate those that Christ loves. Christ loves his own and we must treat his own with the love that Christ has for them. Charity. Humility, piety, charity, finally security. Having loved his own. You look back in your life and you see the evidence of Christ's love to this point. It goes all the way back to the cross. But in your own life's journey, it goes back to a certain point in time. And you can see in your time, my eyes were opened to behold the gospel. My life was spared before that. I saw Christ. I came to know Christ and to love Christ. He's loved me. He will love you tomorrow. Having loved his own, he will love you still. And he will love you forever and forever. That is your hope and that is your stay. So respond properly to this understanding of the love of Christ. Who having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And we're going to spend the next several months essentially preaching that text. Verse by verse, section by section, we're going to see time and time and time again. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee again in Christ's name and we pray for help to, to devotionally apply the word of God. That we would, we would take what you say and rejoice in it. But that our hearts would respond in a worthy manner that we love because he first loved us. Help us to reciprocate Christ's love. Move our hearts tonight. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Draw us to Christ.
in whose name we pray. Amen.